Welcome back to An Alien in Hollywood. This is episode 5, The Schwarzenegger Effect. The start of principal photography for Total Recall. You know, Robin, I thought it'd be helpful for us to take a step back and tell the story of how you actually met Ron Shusette. Well, I met Linda Shusette first. She was a producer for a script I'd written on an extraordinary old woman called Peace Pilgrim, who'd walked penniless and possessionless across the U.S. for decades, preaching peace. The ironic story about us trying to sell the project was the day Linda and I drove into downtown L.A. to pitch it to Hallmark. On the way home, we started to notice there was smoke in the air and people running around the streets kind of chaotically, but we didn't have the radio on because we were doing a post-mortem of our meeting. It wasn't until we got home and turned on the news that we realized we'd just driven through the Rodney King riots, very unpeace pilgrim-like. Uh, but anyway, Linda, was he, she very kindly agreed to introduce me to Ron, who was about halfway through the 10 years it took to get Total Recall made. She showed him my first feature film spec script, which was called The Invisible. And it happened to be a science fiction story about two people who were sharing the same cosmic dream simultaneously. Its theme was something that had been banging around in my head since I started thinking as an adult. And it was about extraterrestrial visitation to Earth in the distant past and the evolution of human consciousness. Well, it was right up Ron's alley. He thought I was a strong writer, but rather trying to sell The Invisible, it had actually just been optioned by another big producer. Ron put me to work doing paid rewrites on some of his unproduced movies. Also at that time, Linda, Ron, and I were developing a couple of original film scripts and TV series. In fact, we pitched one of them to the now famous Game of Thrones director, David Nutter. Anyway, then Ron paid me to write an original script I dreamed up called Rush to Atlantis, a kind of Indiana Jones-flavored adventure that took place in 1907 about a team of explorers sent to investigate an island that had just risen from the depths of the Atlantic Ocean, which turned out to be the ruins of Atlantis. This was the first of the shoe sets and my forays into the subject of lost civilizations and aliens. And in fact, there are important elements from both The Invisible and Rush to Atlantis that 40 years later are major themes in my current Early Earth trilogy, for which Ron is a godfather and executive producer. That's what I call continuity. But during this period, when I was spending a lot of time with Ron and Linda, he'd be sharing the most entertaining of his war stories about the process of getting total recall up and running. My favorites were always the ones about his dealings with Dino De Laurentiis, with Ron doing his best Italian accent, these two crazy producers battling to the death over story points and contracts and name above the title credits. But I also love the Arnold stories where Schwarzenegger became Ron's guardian angel during production, as he called him his own personal superhero. That's such a fascinating and relevant backstory, Robin. Thank you for sharing that. So let's fast forward and take the story down to Mexico City in the summer of 1989, where huge sets had been built and a large part of the $70 million budget 
which by the way was the biggest in the history of filmmaking up until that time, had already been spent. So that's a great place to move on to pre-production and the building of the sets and all of that down in Mexico. Is that where the first, um, where, where that was built? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mexico? Yeah. They finally said, okay, we're not going to do it in Italy or New Zealand. We're doing it in Mexico, uh, with, with Caraco putting up the money. Oh, and I remember said to Arnold, I said, well, uh, they read the script. They love it. He said, no, they hate the script. He said, Caraco, I told him, if you don't do this, I'll never do another movie with you. Said, all right, we'll do it. So the people that financed it hated it. It's just that they didn't want to lose working with Arnold. So he had a lot of clout at the time. Oh, yeah. Once he became those two movies back to back and anyone would do anything with him because they were so different. Twins from Predator, he could do anything. So he said, oh, he does have an unlimited broad audience. It's not just for the people that want nonstop commando movies. He can do any kind of a movie. And then another great story with him was, I think I touched on this earlier, but I got sick during the filming at some point, and maybe a third of the way through. And in Mexico, it's easy to get diseases or whatever it is you get. These things you got uh, attack your system, uh, immune system. And I, I thought, I'm, I have to go back to America. I had a, a parasite, and it's a ple- pleasant to talk about. But they said, okay, this is the problem you got. That's why you're having pain and everything. I don't know. That was a third of the way through the movie. So I thought, I'm going to have to. Now I know they're shooting Arnold's protecting it. Verhoeven, the director, I've completely won over him. They're shooting the exact movie I want. So I, I can leave, and the movie won't be ruined. I can go back to America, and I'll come back in a few weeks. So I didn't tell anybody because I thought it would shake up things and maybe ruin the balance I'd established, and Arnold wants this movie, version of the movie. Paul wants it, and I can go safely away and come back in a few weeks or even if I'm delayed. So I didn't tell anybody. All of a sudden, I get a call at midnight. And it's Arnold. He says, I heard you're flying back to L.A. What's this I heard? I said, yeah. I said, well, why? I, well, I got this parasite. It's painful, and i got to go back. I, he said, no, you don't. He said, look, I had the same thing when I was shooting Predator in Mexico. And I got so sick, and they flew in my food every day, and I got through it. I said, Arnold, you're the world's most fit human. I'm this out-of-condition producer writer. I, I, you know, sure, you got through it. He said, well, you, I'll tell you how you're going to get through it. I'm flying in your food every day with my food. And so they flew in his food because they couldn't afford him or Verhoeven. It was the only two that had their food flowing in. The rest of us might get sick for a couple of days. It didn't matter, even though $100,000 a day. I'm telling you, I'm getting these pills. It was $100 a pill. I remember that. I'm getting you a three-month supply of these pills. You're going to take gamma-gladin, the shot I took when I was in Mexico. I'm paying for all this stuff. Don't worry about it. But you stay here. He said, you know what? I'm not doing this because I'm a nice guy. I'm doing it for my career. This movie needs you. It's never going to be the hit it's supposed to be unless you're here. So can you tell us a little bit about the early days of pre-production when they were building the sets in Mexico City? Arnold had gotten the movie made because he got me Verhoeven, and he was huge and hot, and he didn't want anybody to change one word of it. He had the same feeling I did. It's working perfectly. It doesn't need to be changed. So I, I arrived there with the highest of confidence and everything was going exactly the way I wanted to go. Because in the first meeting with him, he said something to me that won him over, just like the Dino. So you're talking about Verhoeven now. He said, well, what about the face on Mars? What are we going to do about that? Because we knew Mars was in our script. 
And, you know, there was this famous face. And he says, oh, what is that? Is that, was that, you, are we going to say that that's real? That they're on Mars, there's these things, and we finally go there. We just didn't see him with a Viking lander. And then suddenly we see him there. I said, uh, yeah, I said, the face on Mars is, is real. And we'll finally find that out when we get to that part of the planet. It's light and shadows. He said, that's all it is. It looks like a face. If you believe that there's a pyramid-like structure there, you must be mad. I said, well, Paul, I am mad. Who else would write a story with a goddamn giant alien worm coming out of your chest? And he was unpretentious, Paul. He loved it that I didn't take myself seriously. That You know, sure, I did that because I'm half crazy. <laughs> did he pretty much stick to the script? Oh, every every bit of it. And, any anything I wanted, he he wouldn't. He realized he's not going to change. Because too many times I turned out right. He even during the shooting when he wanted to do a couple things different. I said, "Well, you, if you do that there, you're going to be hurt." Of, when you go to the next story point, uh, it happens in the script a few months later. You're going to realize you shouldn't have done that there because what you're saying to change now looks good. When you get later in the story, you'll cut the artery. And you'll have to go back. You don't have that set anymore. And it won't make sense because what you're changing here from what I wrote is not going to make sense at a point in time uh, six months later in the movie. And sure enough, he said, I read it last night. You're right. You're right. I would have totally screwed it up. So anything that I felt strongly about, he would not try to force me to change. What are some of the biggest ideas or visual effects that you and Dan came up with for the movie? Of course, the Quato one was the most famous, I think. What about the pyramid, the, that pyramid where that helps them get air? Arnold, you thought he was Quaid, who was a secret agent, but he was a double agent. Mars had had air years before, millions of years before. Mm -hmm. And there was an ancient race, but something happened that hit the planet and destroyed their environment. And so there are a few people left cryogenically suspended. Uh, and so that if, when Earth, if they got advanced enough to go to Mars, they knew that you could, there was air machines, terraforming equipment, and you just had to know how to activate it. And Arnold knew it because he, he was an ancient guy from, it was frozen millions of years ago when he lived on Mars as a citizen. And so Quato discovered him, frozen and decided I can use this guy for my agent because he's incredibly powerful and smart. And so in the end, that's what happened. It tapped into memories he had uh, that he originally was an ancient guy uh, from ancient race that lived on Mars. And that it, we finally find that out in the, in the climax of the story. It was very convoluted, very convoluted but it all, it all made sense. It was a mindful, yeah, mind but <laughs> It was done in such a way you could believe it all because in a fantasy, if you do it good enough, they'll believe what you show them. If you can make it convincing. There was a really shocking effect that you did when Quaid realized there was something wrong with him and he goes up into his nose with a tool yeah. and he pulls out a probe or or something like that. What, where did that come from? Was that in the original story? Who came up with that? Dan and I together came up with that because it didn't cost any money 
But when he put that thing up his nose and, and he pulled it out, it was horrifying. And it was just that they had, it was typical spy fodder. You advance, they invented something that were controlling him. Uh, the bad guy had done that. And so it was making him do bad things. When he just found him and he had no identity either way, when he became unfrozen, he didn't know who he was. He planted this thing so that he would do his bidding. But when they when he went to buy, finally he went to Total Recall offices. He he didn't know why he wanted to go to Mars. And and they said, oh, we, we, you, you can buy a vacation. You can be anything you want. You can be a secret agent. Oh, secret agent, I'll be that. But at this moment, you thought at that point, he's just a ordinary sap who works a construction job and these are all confusing have nothing to do with him but they had everything to do with him there was real story but when they all when they the adrenaline kicked in because they're all they had guns on him they're ready to shoot him right there and it was one of the most famous scenes in the movie it was early in the movie about a third of the way through and they said we're gonna have to hit, kill you and all of a sudden he turned into like arnold this he turned the super agent that he Thought was a memory bar. He he killed them all in five. Bam, bam, bam. Cam smashed this guy down this and killed them all in a few in a few moments. There were about five guys, and he killed them all because we were trying to kill him. And then the camera pulled up, and all you saw was all these bodies around him. And they go, oh "My God, what did I do?" And that's the first time we knew that he just wasn't an ordinary construction worker who went there to buy an artificial memory. That yeah, that that brings me to my next question. It was about violence. Verhoeven admits that there was an overabundance of violence, even in the final cut of the movie. Right. But and he was asked to cut it down some. But what was your part in trying to get him to tone down the violence? Because when we were editing the movie, he had a tendency, much as I admired him, even Robocop, there was such horrifying scenes of some violence in it. When the first guy, the Robocop, went wrong, and he's he machine gunned to death the guy that was that was on his side, uh, one of the detectives. It was filled with incredible violence. I didn't try to tone him down as we were shooting it because that doesn't matter. You know, you can be too violent and then fix it later. And I would lose my rapport with him if I tried to curb the one thing I was worried that he would get wrong was he would make it so violent people would be, be repelled. Then we got the editing, finally editing the movie together. And he did. He had some particular area. It was so violent, you couldn't even look at it. It was like a guy with a stake through his brain or something. It was walking around. And it was just hideous. And at a crucial moment in the movie, it was so, it was so violent, you couldn't stand it. I, so I looked at the first cut, and I said, Paul, I said, there are moments in there the audience is going to destroy the movie with all the good things in it. It's going to be too much to stand. And he said, uh, well, what do you mean? You you show me. He said, I want, I'm want. i going to go through. We're going to start the movie. And you show me what's so violent. And you can replace it with something that's just as much impact, but less violent. Okay. So he starts to start to go through the first violent scene. And I said, what do you propose? And the editor was, in, was a very successful editor. Tried to get the editor. Doesn't want to rein in over his international star director. So he didn't, he didn't, he was going to go along with Paul, not, not tone down the violence. So they're both looking at me. So you, what do you think we should do? What's your genius? What's your take on the violence and still have all the impact, but cut down the violence? So I said, okay, I'll work with you right here. Give me about, you tell us each cut that you object to, and then we'll cut it on and we'll run it this scene the way you're editing it. I said, okay. So it took about an hour and then they looked at it. 
And Paul looks at the other, he says, you know, he's right. It's much better this way. It's less violent, but it's more artful too. He's right. <laughs> and so there's, yeah, he is. He's like, well, it's been my experience that producers and writers don't know what they're talking about. And you're the first producer writer I ever saw who was right about how I should edit my movie. <laughs> so from then on, he, he took very seriously anything. Every time I wanted to edit out some of the violence, he said, fine, we'll add that, edit that out because you're probably going to be right. He said to somebody, every time I'm sure Ron's going to be wrong, say, oh, that can't be right. It's going to be gut. He's going to take the bite out of it. Sure enough, I look at it, it's better. Every time he edits something differently, it works better than I had in mind. So from then on, I had a tremendous input on the level of violence, and it got turned toned down way down till it was palatable. Was there a time during the shooting that, that either the studios or the producers were trying to get you thrown off the set, but Arnold stepped in. It was about a third of the way through the shoot. and Everything was going great because they were shooting my version. And I had a perfect rapport with both Arnold and Paul. So when your director and your star are on your side and they want to make the vision you want, because they have faith in you and the material, everything looked to me like it was going Oh, this is smoother than I could have ever thought. By the time I got to the set, we were a third of the way through. I said, everything's being done my way. But the pickup was his budget was running amok. Yeah, we knew it was expensive. As, uh, as somebody said, oh, every time you open the door, there's a special effect. And you got to know, and the story's complex, and the effects are complex. And a lot of them we have to do as we're shooting. We can't do them later. And it's very difficult, and the budget's going to go crazy, and it's going to be difficult. It can be done, but it's going to be a difficult movie to make. So that turned out to be true. But then something worse happened about my participation. The budget was so out of control. Nobody thought it would be the most expensive movie ever made. We knew it'd be expensive. So that was starting to become clear. It was going to cost more than any movie ever cost before. And so who can you, but it wasn't anything I was doing. It's just that they underestimated what it would really cost. And I would do some things increase the cost, but not nearly the one that made it go balloon out of control. It was because they all assumed it was going to cost less. And we got to make it, even with the script they had in mind, it costs way more. Who's the person you should, I'm the writer and the producer. I'm the guy to blame. So the studio said, we got to get rid of Ron because he'll never change what we want to change. We got to cut. Every time they tried to cut too much, I'd say, no, I can cut something. You can't make all these cuts because you shot this much. You're in the middle, a third of the way through. It won't make sense. You can't cut drastic amounts because you've built up things and there has to be a payoff. You cut that, the whole move, you'll have a movie that costs less will be worthless. It won't, won't add up. It'll have no payoff to any of the punches. So they could see, I would not let them cut tremendous amounts of money to bring it down to a normal budget. Say, okay. We got to get rid of Ron. Even though everybody says the movie looks great. Maybe he's running amok and maybe he can cut it down and he, and he doesn't want to because of his ego and he's invested in this. And maybe it could still be great and costless. I said, no, not, not these kind of cuts you want to make. It's not going to be great. It's going to be a misfire. So I said, we well, got a fire on. So one day I get this letter in my office late at night. It says, you are removed from, from the picture. Here's your ticket back to Los Angeles. Uh, and if you say no, you don't get any of your profits. You don't get the balance of your fee. And we take away your credit. You, you're barred from the set starring Monday. That was on a Friday, Friday. And I was horrified. I'd read this. 
And I understand. I mean, there was a lot at stake and you were trying to do what you thought was prudent, right? Like they were a studio, even though they were an independent, they were big because of these big Rambo movies. So I called my attorney. Nothing you can do about it, Ron. Every financier has a clause. I'm a morality. You could be on drugs. You could be anything they say that you're you're going wrong because there's certain things you're doing that are make your judgment cloud. You can't prove you're not. And so there's nothing you can do contractually. If you don't leave, uh, you're not entitled to any of these things from the movie. And I said, well, if I leave, I'll be a total fluke because alien will mean nothing. If this huge budget is, I'm so either egotistical or wrongheaded, they have to throw me off the movie. It'll destroy my whole reputation, no matter how good the movie is. And she said, nothing you can do. So I realized that, oh my God. And it was late at night and Arnold every day worked out, even though we're shooting 12 or 14 hours a day, because that's how he stayed to be Miss Universe, Mr. Universe shape, you know? So he, he the only two people in the studio were me and him. He all, I always stayed late trying to improve the script. He always stayed late working out. His office was, his workout gym was right across from me. It was late at night. So I said, okay, I got to run out and tell him that they just threw me off the movie and there's nothing I can do about it. So I remember because it was drizzling rain. So I ran off out the door. I said, Arnold, Arnold, I got to talk to you. Said, what? I said, I, they threw me off the movie. What are you talking about? The movie is great. It's going fantastic. You made a huge contribution. I said, well, it's going out of, out of control and they think it's my fault. I said, look at this, read this. And he saw this letter. He looks at it and he says, uh, tell you what, he said, uh, I take care of it. I said, but Arnold, you gotta be, I, if I'm there on the set, I've lost everything. I, I can't even appear Monday on the set unless you do something legally. Ron, you worry too much. I take care of it. I said, he puts it in his pocket. He says, you know, are they in Cannes? I said, yeah, they're in their yacht in Cannes. Okay, I take care of it. <laughs> and we knew, you know, Cannes was happening then and they, that's what they do. They go in their yachts and they, so he said, I, I take care of it. I tell you what you'd do, Ron. We were all in the same hotel because there's less chance of getting sick if you're in the same, all the whole companies there. You're less likely to eat something that uh, gave you a Montezuma's revenge, whatever it is. So he says, uh, I'll tell you what you do. So you go back to your room and you wait for the telephone to ring. And you're going to get a call from them asking and telling you they're going to apologize to you for throwing you off the movie, trying to throw you off the movie. Really, Ron? He yeah, you just go up there and I'll talk to you tomorrow. You go sit there in your room and wait for them to call you and tell you, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Because they're not here. The director's here. I'm here. We know what's happening. They can't know. They don't realize how much the movie needs you. So I go there. I go to my room. I don't see anything. A couple hours go by. He says, get a call from Andy Vanya, Mario Kassar. They said, Ron, what do you want from us? I said, I want my life back. You can't, you can't throw me off the movie now. I'll be just, my career will be destroyed. What do you want? I said, dictate a letter to me. Says you're not, you remove the clause where I'm barred from the set starring Monday. And not only that, you might get an idea a week later to throw me off. You got to send me something. Oh, we had faxes then, I guess. You send me a fax that said you can never remove from no matter what I do, that's whether I'm on drugs or I'm anything else, because I knew they could use it. You can never remove me from this picture. Even if the cost goes double. All right. <laughs> Dictate what you want. He said, here's what I want. And he's in about a half hour. The effects come through. They were signed. Everything I said. Okay. So, oh, boy. It's saved. Because there's nothing they can ever do, even if Arnold changed his mind later. They were already committed. They can't replace me. So, uh, 
I go down to the desk and I say, uh, I, I said, listen, Arnold's not in his room. There was a restaurant, Benihana or whatever it is upstairs. He said, oh, yeah, he's upstairs in the restaurant. I said, oh, good. So it was like late at night and they'd done all this. And I go upstairs and I see him smiling there. And he said, is everything all right, Ron? I said, everything's great. I said, so you heard from, yeah, you satisfied? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know what you said, but they gave me every protection I ever could want. I'm, I'm completely out of danger. That's what I said. I said, probably do that. He said, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you told him, but it sure solved the situation fast. He said, yeah, very simple. I said, Ron goes, I go. I said, what? I said, yeah, I'm quitting. If Ron, I signed this contract with Ron as producer as well as writer, and I'm backing out. He said, well, you can't do that. We have $25 million worth of footage. It's not just you're the biggest name. We can't replace you. We'd have to cancel the whole movie because we'd have to reshoot everything. We can't afford to. He said, then you can't afford to fire Ron, can you? They tried to fire me on Alien. They tried to fire me in Total Recall, and they couldn't in either case. I showed them that I would not use my power against them. And now you're talking about Paul and Arnold. I had a powerful connection with Arnold. But I would never put them in a position where Arnold's on my side, he's going to overrule you. I wanted both parties. What I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure everyone was on board with it, not just me, that we'd reach a compromise between Arnold and Paul and me. So one time, Arnold, Paul wanted to do something. I said, uh, it's not going to work. It's going to be, be very bad later in the movie. And he said, why? And I told him why. He said, you're right. Arnold and I wanted to do this, but I can see we're both wrong. Did you tell Arnold yet? I said, no, because I don't want to poison his mind. If you don't agree with me, I want to reach a compromise. So right then I showed him. For the rest of the movie, he said, Ron's never going to try and use his ego to get what he wants. He's going to do something that will make the movie better, or he's, if it doesn't, he's going to work out a compromise. It's not I'm my way because I have power and you can't stop me. It's I can want to convince you this is better for the movie. Three of us have to agree. So right then he realized this is never going to be an ego battle. We're all going to, it's going to be something we all feel works. It wasn't total recall. The last big special effect movie before CGI came in. Yeah, we had no, no CGI. And that was an alien had no CGI, but you see, again, it goes down to people. There are people who are artists and they can do it better no matter what CGI technology is great. When the people are the effects are genius level people and they're doing animatronic and mechanical, it can be better than CGI because CGI, one disadvantage, it's manufactured. It looks like it's not really happening. Even though the technology is great and it's impressive and awesome, those movies that had special effects that were crafted by guys like Rob Bottin, uh, Sam Stan Winston, uh, and there were a couple of other guys who were early masters. They were so talented. They could do it, do effects that work today as good as any movie ever worked because they were so skilled at what they did. So it gets down to, too, if you have the right people, it's much more important than any technology you've got. Because nobody ever said Alien looks dated or Total Recall looks dated, even though we had no CGI in either one. It was a very important shot, one of the key shots in the movie that I think when you first looked at the Martian, uh, their civilization, because they're living under a dome and all that, and Arnold is up about 60 feet 
high and he has to make this jump to another girder and there's still in danger of shooting him or something. So he makes this jump and then he sees what he needs to know about what's happening to the colony there. And it was very important to get it right when the most expensive shots and most crucial and be very hard to shoot it a second time. So I said in the morning, Arnold, I'm going to make the jump with you. He said, what are you talking about? You're not a goddamn stunt man. Because the leading lady was with him. I said, yeah, I, I look so small compared to you. I'm, you're going to see me from the back and I'll be wearing her outfit and I'll look like that's her. But I have around my belt, you know, they had video monitors of what's happening. And I said, I've got on my, my belt a little tiny video monitor and I can see if the shot's working. Now she could make the jump, but she can't tell Paul who's looked down there and see how the shot works. She won't know if it should be shot differently. And Paul will believe me if I say this shot isn't working like it's supposed to, but he won't want me to do, be up here making this jump. So we're not going to tell him till I see if it works and I'm saying it's working. And so Arnold said, well, it's a pretty big jump. You know, you got to be a, a stuntman to make the jump. I said, look, I, no, I'll just fall into the net if I miss it. Cause I was up here this morning and it's crucial. Yeah. Cause he said, well, you can get hurt your back far. I said, no, I, I fell in it twice. I, missed the jump on purpose one time I made it so I might make the jump or I might miss but I won't get hurt so Arnold says Jesus Christ you're crazy <laughs> Paul doesn't realize I'm up there until somebody's well that's Ron what yeah he's where he looks small compared to Arnold he looks like the leading lady he looks like Melina's um, jumping when it's really Ron and so he said Arnold Paul would have never let me take the chance because first of all he needed me secondly he didn't want me to get hurt and so I remember Arnold saying, I don't know, you're like uh, one of these producers from the old days. If they were filming a movie about sharks, he'd jump in the ocean and shoot with the scene they were shooting with a shark. He said, I got to make sure you get this scene right. So sometimes I took things into my own hands because I'm so obsessed with making the movie great that I, I'm oblivious to risks. I, I, maybe I think I'm leading a charmed life. He turned to me one day and he said, thank God you're here, Ron. If you weren't here, Ron, I don't, I don't think I could have finished the movie. Thank you for being here. It was the proudest moment of my life. You had to be doing something right. Yeah. I mean, you're audacious for sure and outrageous, but you never let your ego rule you. You let your gut tell you what's right. And somehow that... I rely on persuasion. Persuasion. And it works every time when you see the things I'm doing. Are, I never make medium size. They're always outlandish, huge budgets because that's what I do well. So to do that, you, you're always going to have to have a huge, an A-level, I think I said this, an A-level actor and an A-level director. And those kind of people are usually have such good instincts. If you can show them a clear indication of what you're trying to get them to do is better than they want to do, They'll every time they say, well, you're right, this is better because they're talented enough to see it. And, and, and it seems like the idiots of the world conspire to stop people who have too much vision. They try to stop you because, oh, what do you, that's crazy, you know? And that's going to be a battle all your life. If you're, if you have a lot of vision, you can see it and they can't. It's going to be something that's going to be always difficult until you find the people that are smart enough to say, okay, this is right that he wants to do. It's just not that his way he wants. He wants to make a better movie. Earlier, you talked about the face on Mars mm -hmm. and 
how it was important to tell that backstory of he was, he was previously on Mars because of a previous civilization that had where right. things had gone bad. So right. I'm wondering there was a real civilization that built these things. It yeah. wasn't just light and shadow. So I'm wondering where the inspiration for those ideas came from. Well, real life, there was a big controversy. Everybody was saying, is a face on Mars real or is it light and shadow? Or there's a, was there a civilization that lived on Mars before earth? And most people thought that was crazy. You know, that that's that you're talking about because you see light and shadow and looks like a face. It's not really, we saw no other signs when we had the landers there, but when we, got a little further there were indications like there's water under the surface. They didn't know that then, but at the beginning, at that time, it was all uh, conspiracy nuts. Imagine that there, that there was a civilization that built these things. Isn't it funny that in both alien and total recall, somebody, one of the producers or writers wanted it not to be on a different planet. Yeah. You said that on Alien, they wanted it to be in some uh, locker room in uh, Yeah, some war zone, some foreign wars uh, taking place right. instead of uh, space stuff. And here on Total Recall, they wanted it to take place on Earth. And isn't it true that when they went back and they did a remake of Total Recall, it wasn't on Mars. It was on Earth. And it was a flop. Right, right. And I tried to tell them that when they were remaking it, I was reading what they were doing. No, we want another writer, not you, because this is not your total recall. It's not Verhoeven's total recall. The people that did the remake said, this is our take on total recall. It's nothing doesn't matter what you want. We're going to do it just the way we want it. And I said, okay, can't stop them, you know, because they usually don't want, when they do a remake, they don't want the first writer they want a new version, even though it was a hit that way. Too much humor. I said, well, that's what made it a hit. It had, there was a charm to it because there's a lot of humor that most movies didn't have that much at that time. The Robocop driver, uh, and when he went to Mars, they said, well, you can be, if you want to we'll give you an option. No options, just Mars. You know, they were doing funny satirical things that gave it a certain charm that made it, better and different than most sci-fi thrillers that just inundated you with nonstop action. And they said, no, we're going to take out all the humor. That's our take on it. We're going to take out all the humor. It's too funny. And so they did it that way. And ours, let's see, we made over 200 million. They lost a hundred million. And the people and the reviews said, what happened to all the humor? Why'd you take out all the humor? But they wouldn't listen to me until they screwed it up. Because uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was the thing about right. Raiders. That it made a huge it amount had. of humor. And same, yeah, and same with Star Wars. Right. It wasn't just constant, constant, right. serious violence right. and action. Right. Yeah, those moments of humor are what made those movies. And you heard the story when we had the preview. The guy that got the credit on the remake of Total Recall, he came over to me. He didn't know me, but he'd seen me in interviews and everything. And we were there for the oh, premiere preview and you could see halfway through the movie it was terrible and no it was this horrible silence nobody applauded at the end and he came over to me and he said i just have to apologize to you for ruining your movie and you you know this is the guy that ended up doing the rewrites as they wanted him and he said i tried to tell him it would ruin it but he said if you don't do this we'll fire you so i did it i thought i hope they're right but i had the feeling they're gonna un ravel the sweater and it's going to be a pile of yarn in the middle of the thing. It's going to be, and it is, it's a disaster. 
I said, I know it wasn't your fault because stories already came back to me that you try and tell them. If you make this many changes, you will unravel. It's too intricately knit a story. You can't just go swatch. I'll change this and I'll do this. I'll do this. And you have nothing because it ha there, there is a, a, a driving force behind the story concept. And if you ruin that, you'll have a mishmash. And that's what they had. Nobody could even follow what was going on. They can't see it, you know. Is there anything we want to talk about as the film wrapped up and we moved into release? Many memories you have of that. It took 10 years to get Total Recall made after Alien. Because when it's highest grossing, highest cost movie in history, you have to have the star and director before you're going to make the most expensive movie ever made. So it took 10 years. But in that time, since I only made one low budget movie along the way, of course, it was very demoralizing. I thought my career is over. And I'll look like I've lost track of what's pertinent and what works now. I spent so much energy on doing nothing but trying to get Total Recall made. And I couldn't get it made that it would look like I was a, a has-been. Because you didn't, you can't tell if it's really going to be hit. Yes, I believed in it incredibly, but I could have been wrong too. And so it was all whether I was right and whether the people that sided with me were right. And maybe it was like, oh, he was great an alien, but he it's a it's gone by. It's it's gone by. A ship has passed him by, and he's not the visionary he was because this movie is so expensive and so bizarre, and it doesn't work. And it proved that Alien was a fluke. And I think I remember uh, right before it opened, I went to the biggest bookstore, science fiction bookstore in L.A., and I looked up on the wall and it said, "Total Recall coming." And Arnold's name was you, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and written and produced almost as big by Ron Chusset. I said, Linda, look at that. Look at that. I'm not dead. They know who I am. They haven't given up on me. They, they may be wrong. But right now, they think it's going to be golden. It was the first time I realized, my God, it looks like I'm going to pull this off because I couldn't believe my name, a stars and a director or everything, right? And my name was as big as Arnold's. What about the premiere, and what, was that a big a big moment? Yeah, yeah, the premiere. Oh, yeah. By then, of course, I, again, with all the publicity coming anew in my background, every, people were talking about me, the whole industry. I was right up there like I was when I did Alien. Everybody was saying, is, is it going to be, are Bannon Chusette going to pull off another all-time classic? So I remember we pulled up in a limousine, and my mother was with me. And to the front of the theater. This is one thing I remember. And all these people, all of a sudden, all the, the fans were in the stands, but they came down and they were they were reaching for the limousine window. And my mother said, what do they want? <laughs> I said, they want a duchess. They want some of the magic to rub off. So now Ron Chusette had two blockbusters under his belt. You'd think that things would get a little easier for him, but this podcast isn't called an alien in Hollywood for nothing. Despite his successes, Ron continued to be the consummate outsider. He never played by the rules. He wasn't buddies with any of the big guns in Hollywood. He was eccentric. He dressed more like the absent-minded professor than a movie producer. <laughs> and he was a troublemaker. Nobody could control him. The most famous agent of his day, Mike Ovitz of, of CIA, said of Ron... The problem with Ron Chusette 
is that once you hire him, you can never fire him. But look, nobody could deny he was smart, and the smartest thing he had done during this time was partner up with a writer named Gary Goldman, who'd optioned another one of Phil Dick's short stories called The Minority Report. And that was destined to become the Steven Spielberg-directed blockbuster of the same name. That story, next time on An Alien in Hollywood.